It's true. Thanks, Big Beard. Is there any chance we can use this fan without it? No. It's quiet. It's not quiet. It's blowing right into the microphone. It's going to create that hum the entire... All right. Oh, man. It's just going to be a warm show. I don't even have any water in Portland. That's what I hear. I'm getting water then. If you act like it's fundamentally different from any other show we've ever recorded. These tyrannical restrictions upon me. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Storyman Podcast, episode 104. I am Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Foresteros. And I am Matt Michelantos. We are the Storymen, and we also write over at NorvalRogers.com. Today we are talking about mental health. It's a tough subject that we get some great help from by a podcaster and a professional counselor named Zach Rawlings, who... I think dropped some great knowledge. I'm excited for people to give feedback to this episode. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, this is an this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, after my parents divorced, I was in counseling for like five years, uh, not always by of my own free will, but I feel like I benefited enormously from it. So I've been an advocate for it since I was a teenager, and uh, it's something that I, I really like the way Zach addresses some of the. Uh, stigma surrounding it and how we can go about alleviating that. Uh, it's it's a great episode. Yeah, for a long time, mental health, mental mental illness was equated with possession. Yeah, demons, right? And yeah. in a lot of circles, as Michalatis pointed out, it still is. Um, so there's a lot of times of fear of people getting the treatment they desperately need, and uh, sometimes the church can do a lot of damage by prohibiting people from getting that help. You would you would treat any other medical emergency or issue. And our minds sometimes need that same kind of treatment. So we're going to get to the interview with Zach in a few minutes. Uh, so what, what are we talking about this week, though? Something f- kind of fun happened, did it not? Well, yeah. I mean, as our listeners know, we were in uh, we were in an episode of Z Nation that aired last Woo-hoo! Friday. And so we finally got to listen to ourselves perform in the episode. Specifically, we got to really listen to UJR let it rip as a BA bounty hunter trying to get that car. I felt like I was pretty convincing. What's a, can you give us an example of the kind of thing you said to that car when you wanted it to pull over because you were a bounty hunter and stuff? I did say things like, pull over, pull over, pull the car over. That sounds like a table. <laughs> oh, <read. laughs> yes. He's like, pull Excellent. over, pull the car over. Really want the car. Really want the car. Yeah, there it is. See, there's only one. Pull thing. over, I'll blast you. He he gets some great... In the face? <laughs> <laughs> you can definitely hear Aaron, our uh, audio producer, uh, when he was saying... He was we, on the car. He really said the same the car. kind of stuff. Really yeah. the car. And Matt, we did get to hear, uh, as you demonstrated last episode... Your zombie. Well worth listeners going back and listening to episode 103 um, for Matt's demonstration of what it sounds like when he eats brains. Yeah, it was fantastic. There's a lot of slurping. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was really good, really good stuff. So, uh, super fun. I mean, it was. We were watching. Clay and I were watching it with my wife Amanda. And uh, when I died as a zombie the first time, and I just had the whoop, like she was like, "Oh, I could tell that was you." And then, of course, when I was shouting things, oh, she got very excited. Yeah. Topic two. Did you guys see the blood moon? I did see the super blood moon. 
super blood moon. Did they have that up in Portland where the sun apparently never stops setting? Uh, they did, I hear, have it in Portland. However, I was in an aeroplane and it was behind me, so I could not see it. You yeah. were on an aeroplane during moon time, Matt? Wow. I was. During the entire moon time, almost. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, yeah, I saw the so blood moon and I couldn't help but notice how the world did not end yet again. Really? You know what, though? Oh, that's right. Are you sure about that? Yes. Could this not be just an illusion? We might have a um, There were people in Portland running around dressed as demons during the blood red moon. Is that different moon. than any other but day? But they were not mentally ill. Well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, is anyone keeping a running tally of all of the times that John Hagee has been wrong? Jason Boyette wrote the, the Pocket Guide to the Apocalypse, yeah. and he basically chronicled the best hits of, like, what, 1,500 years of people predicting hey, the end of the world. Jason Boyette, he was our first guest on Story he Man. He was. I what? was already oh, thinking Oh, wow. It. He was our first? He's our very first That's guest amazing. in episode number two. We haven't talked to Jason in a while. We had to see what he's up to. Yeah, and then Tifa was our second guest on episode number three. Tifa, I don't even remember that. Who's it's that? It's like you're foreshadowing our entire episode today. So maybe it's time that we It's just... funny because Matt always thinks Tifa was our first guest. He always forgets you know about why? Jason Boyette. Because she was so good. She was so good. That's That feels rude. Jason was fine. That's... He just didn't feel like number one. Jason, oh man, that feels even Mr. Ruder. Boyette, we're big fans, love to have you back on the show. <laughs> Jason, you know, you know what it is? I know exactly what it is. What's the first thing Jason brought up? Ragnarok and the wolf that devours them. Oh yeah. And Matt's so, terrified. Hey, Matt's terrified hey, of wolves. My mental health requires me not remembering <laughs> any of that. That you know, Matt, conversation. I knew getting, there was a reason you had a Boyette block. We're getting pretty close to where we're going to finally hear why wolves are not so bad. You know what? I Still, I'm not sure I buy into that, despite the excellent source. Um, <laughs> Foreshadowing guys, for I, episode something in the future. Something like 10 in the probably. future, exactly. Surprise episode. You guys, I have to tell you this. Um, I was talking to Allie, my, my 12-year-old daughter, this week. And she told me, she's like, hey, I was over at Grandma and Granddaddy's house, and they were listening to your podcast. And I was like, what are you guys listening to? And, they, and uh, they, yeah, they were listening to Story Brothers. <laughs> Story bros. Oh, we are like brothers. Story bro. Hey, uh, I also we do our pop culture pick of the week at the end of the episode, but Clay yeah. and I have to add a papow to the beginning. It was what? too it was too big to just use as a papow. And technically, well, no, it'll be okay. We're not allowed to post reviews until Thursday at four p.m., but this goes up on Friday. So yes, uh, Matt Clay what, and I both you... Clay and I both saw The Martian last night. You did? We did. <laughs> was <laughs> it as boring as the book? Uh, yes, but the book was awesome. <laughs> yeah. So also was the movie. It was the movie worse. was good, but you, you're you not allowed to put up the review till Friday when this episode goes up. So you can talk about it. Thursday at 4 p.m. is when all press reviewings were limited to. Mm-hmm. So this will be fine. Yeah. Okay, yeah. The so Martian it was, awesome. was, it was incredible. Excellent. I mean, just really, really cool. Funny, was- tense. Yeah. Really great. Was it better than the Sandra Bullock Lost in Space movie? No. Gravity? Gravity, yeah. Uh, super different, but I loved Gravity. It's better than Castaway. Oh, which okay. is, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Castaway. Wait, is Tom Mars. Hanks in this one? No. no not at all. Nowhere no. near it. Never mind. I only go to Tom Hanks movies. <laughs> um, Matt Damon's in it. Okay, I like Matt Damon. Yeah. 
No, is it's... he or is he not playing the same character from Interstellar? Not. No. Probably his, grand, it, his grandfather. Possible. Could it be that he's playing the same character in the past from Interstellar? And theoretically, it, it informs what he does in Interstellar. That isn't theoretically. So his possible. name in The Martian is Mark Watney, and his name in Interstellar is Dr. Mann. So, so he just hadn't gotten his doctorate yet or changed his name. Right, right. That's probably it. Seems likely. Yeah, seems likely. Yeah, there's some really interesting things. No, for all, all, all kidding aside, like the movie is absolutely incredible. Uh, I am not sure where it's going to end up in my top ten this year, but I, it's it's going to probably be in the top three, almost certainly. So, wow, it, absolutely incredible, yeah. absolutely incredible. All right, Every, really, everything about it was great. I was, I did not, my interest didn't wane for one second for 140 minutes. Accurate. Wow. So that's our that's our supplementary pow. All right, it's time to get to this interview. Jared. We got to get to the interview with Zach. So right. go see the Martian. It comes out. It's out by the time you're listening to this podcast. You won't regret it. And enjoy the interview with Zach. Our guest today is Zach Rollins. Zach is a podcaster and a clinical and mental health counselor. Uh, Zach, welcome to the story, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So. Zach, we originally connected with you through Tifa Phillips, who uh, was one of the first guests we ever had on The Storyman. Uh, she's in Page CXVI, and uh, I believe her newest project is called Modus Spira, Matt. Is that how you pronounce it? Mm, I, I think, okay, I always tease her about having terrible names that are hard to remember, but I want to say it's Modus Spira. Okay, so uh, so Zach, you are friends with Tifa, and you reached out to her. Uh, you were starting a podcast, and she basically ended up connecting you with us. So uh, how do you know Tifa? How did that connection happen? Absolutely. Yeah, we go way back. We are kind of in the same friend group here in Denver, and she actually wrote and composed the theme music and the score for our Misunderstood podcast. Um, what? She didn't say yeah, she would do that for story man <laughs> i know right so she was our first guess i think or second guess matt she was our second second guess you're gonna have to get the retroactive perks from her then i know she's in trouble so zach one of the things we do when we bring guests on the story man is ask them to display their geek credentials so what makes you a geek Man, that's a good question. I was thinking about there's it's what doesn't, but I think the biggest thing that I'm doing right now is I love a strong vocabulary and I've been listening to this vocabulary builder podcast every morning and I don't admit <laughs> that to everybody, but that's the biggest thing I'm doing at the moment. That's fantastic. Come on, Zach, you're going to have to bust a word out for us now. Abstemious. Whoa, what? Ooh, what does that mean? That one? You never heard it. No, I have no idea what that means. It means to be modest in your eating or drinking and lifestyle habits. Nice. <laughs> so you can try to work that in today in, your, in the podcast, maybe. <laughs> okay, good. So how does a vocabulary podcast work? Like, what does that sound like? Yeah, kind of. Like, the, the, the host of it does four new words a day, and then defines them, tells you the root, and gives you a context, and then quizzes you on them at the end of the, the podcast. That's fantastic. <laughs> awesome. It's like going back to high school. <laughs> kind of, yeah, sure. It's, I get, I'm get, it's a lot more uh, bigger words than I learned in high school, but I went to a public school <laughs> in Missouri, so... <laughs> So, uh, Zach, where in Missouri did you grow up? Because I'm from Kansas City. I grew up in a tiny farm town in southeast Missouri, and it's called Gatewood, Missouri. Okay. And then I went to college at Missouri State in Springfield. 
So my real question is, how close were you to Lambert's? Oh, I was uh, an hour and a half from the Lambert's in Sykeston, three hours away from the Lambert's in Ozark. Lambert's, what is that, like a barbecue joint? No, not barbecue. Um, any type of fried food you can imagine in copious amounts that they will bring to you. And they throw the rolls at you. That's their shtick. Is that it's the home of the thrown rolls. So the, the waiters go around and throw rolls at you. So it's not a very abstemious place it isn't it is not an abstemious oh, man already the word of the day has already been spoken it's very true so uh what i love about lambert's is that everything is served family style so the servers come around with these big vats of like stewed tomatoes and fried okra and all this kind of stuff and they just sort of like slop it down on your plate so there's just almost like an endless amount of food it's it's uh, pretty incredible is is this one of those places where they weigh you before you go in and then when you go out and they charge you by the pound? No, but they, they should. Uh, no, Lambert's was definitely a place that we often made pilgrimages to uh, because <laughs> yeah. uh, so I went to college uh, at Southwest Baptist University just up the road from you. Oh, yeah. And uh, at on your birthday, you always got a free meal if you went there on the actual day of your birthday. And of course, it wasn't it's uh, true. It wasn't a great place to eat for free if you had to pay uh, because of course we were poor college students, but everyone else, like you would go on your birthday and think all you can eat. (laughs) And my play was always to get the steak and the shrimp and not eat any of the sides because of course uh, even the entrees were all you can eat. So if you finished your steak, they would bring you another steak and another shrimp and like basically as much as you wanted. Um, Uh, Yeah. But you had to, I mean, you really had to pace yourself. And of course, uh, if you had a large enough friend group, it was just really hard because you had to go all the time. (laughs) You had to commit to the day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right, 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 right. So believe it or not, we didn't actually bring Zach on the show today to talk about Lambert's. We actually brought him on to talk about mental health and the issues surrounding mental health. Now, Zach, you are a mental health professional, licensed clinical and mental health counselor. And I, I want to hear a little bit of your story about how you got to the podcast because you uh, you started out with a degree in broadcast journalism at uh, Missouri State University and then went back for clinical mental health counseling. And that all led you to uh, culminate in, in producing this podcast called We Are Misunderstood. And I want to just read uh, from the description of We Are Misunderstood understood on the website Uh, you say we are all misunderstood and the misunderstood podcast is our voice mental health continues to be a subject that very few people want to talk about many who struggle with it feel embarrassed or guilty about their pain and those who don't are left without an understanding of the depths these issues could reach we all need to be on the same page to disperse the fear that surrounds mental health and to help reconstruct the misconceptions that plague it by using stories that shed a personal light on these subjects that so often go unshared, we're putting a voice to the problems that become bigger the less we talk about them. People suffer because their experiences go unheard. Our intent is to move closer, to pay attention, to ask good questions, and walk in another's shoes to get a better understanding of how mental health affects all of us. And all we have to do, and our audience too, is listen. Uh, Zach, tell us how this podcast came about. Absolutely. No, that's a good question. So I actually, uh, well, one, yes, I did major in that. And I worked at this news station for a year and realized it was a horrible uh, lifestyle. You get paid very little and you work all nights and weekends because that's when the news is on. Right. And so uh, it was and I just looked at the people who had kind of like arrived in the business, who are the primetime anchors that are doing the five, six and 10 o'clock newscasts. And I was like, I don't want those hours and I don't want to be called every time there's like a snowstorm. So I knew that that wasn't the career trajectory that I was going down. And so I actually worked for a ministry for a while 
um, out right outside of college. And then I got my um, counseling degree at a, a sem- seminary at Denver seminary here in Denver. And um, as the path that led to that was that I think I was just increasingly frustrated by the lack of empathy that I, that I just saw around me around issues of mental health. And I think in my experience in doing story and writing story and doing interviews and just even with my experiences in ministry, I found that, that there were um, people love to find what the problems are, but they really aren't great at coming up with what the solutions are um, in both of those institutions. And so I felt that counseling, psychology, and mental health was this kind of untapped area where we could really find answers to some of these problems that are affecting us in journalism, that are affecting us in psychology, that are affecting us in, in ministry and churches. And so that was the path that I kind of took to to get a better understanding there. You know, I really appreciate that you are taking aim at the stigma that surrounds mental health. Uh, As I have engaged people about the possibility of counseling, you see over and over again that people seem so afraid of that. And and some of that really goes back to the fact that throughout our history as a country and really, I guess, as Western culture, uh, we have not handled mental health well. We actually have a long history of attributing, as we were kind of talking in the pre-show, to things like demons and, and stuff like that. And, and so uh, I wondered if maybe you and Clay, since you guys are both well-versed in the history of this, could go back and, and talk about the history of mental health and our culture and where we've come and maybe a little bit of how far we have left to go. Oh, okay. Well, in terms of where we've been, we've been to some horrific practices where in the Middle Ages, people would bleed out other people's brains because they thought that they, you know, it was bad blood that was causing things like schizophrenia or depression or whatever. They would tie them into chairs um, to to help have them sit the demon out. So there's there's been some pretty horrible practices and it wasn't until I think, Oh, was it the beginning of the 19th century into the 18th century where a guy finally decided like, Hey, there's a more humane way of doing this. I find he found that treating people kindly helped alleviate a lot of the bad symptoms that they were having in these horrific institutions, right? Like the kindness goes this long way. And so it was, the, and I'm blanking on his name right now, but he was French. It was a, it was a physician that was working in, in France, and I, I would have to, to do my research. It's been a while since I've taught my Psych 101 classes to my students. So I'm escaping his name. But he realized that the kindness and humane conditions actually helped alleviate a ton of the problems. Now, it didn't alleviate all of them. Psychosis was still present, but um, their, their, their behavior and their manners improved drastically. And then it was even in Freud in the late 1800s that he called it the talking cure, um, where there's something about talking that seemed to cure a lot of problems that people had. And so he coined this phrase that we call the talking cure. And so we've, we've come through a lot of ways where we've kind of understood that there's, there's some kind of connection between two people who are connecting in this really honest, this raw way, or a, a group of people that are connecting in this really honest and raw way that can really help someone's mental state and just their level of happiness. Um, and as to where we are today is that, yes, we're I think we're more we're more therapy friendly and we're more mental health friendly than we ever have been, at least here in America. 
However, there's still a lot of discomfort and bad information that gets floated around. Um, one of the things that I heard a lot after Robin Williams committed suicide last year was that suicide is, is this really selfish option. And, um, or I heard after Andreas Levitz crashed the German flight last year that um, people with depression should be um, prevented from holding certain jobs. And so there's still some of these ideas that are floating around that's just bad ideas. And they're ideas that are lacking and or that are rooted in just not having good information and not really understanding what it's like to be in the position of someone who's battling some kind of mental disorder. So to sum up, we've come a long way. We're not bleeding people's brains out who are experiencing delusional thought anymore, but we still are pretty tight lipped and believing stuff that isn't true when it comes to our mental health. Zach, uh, I, I was going to ask you to unpack a little bit what you just said about uh, suicide and depression. Like, I think it's a pretty behind when someone commits suicide to think, Oh, that was really selfish. I wish they'd asked for help. I wish they told me about it. Like, did they think of me when they did that? And likewise with the depression thing, I think people who haven't been through it have like zero understanding of what that actually means. Like, could you unpack that a little? Totally. Um, yeah. And I think I missed the first part of your question, but if I heard you correctly, you're just saying, uh, what, how is that not a right assumption to have that suicide is a selfish option? Is that the, the thrust of your well, question? Well, I, I don't know that it's necessarily right, but I think it's a pretty natural kind of place right. that a lot of people go when they've lost right. someone. Yeah, and it, it's certainly a reasonable place for a lot of people that are left in the wake of of the loss of someone that's so tragically, we want we want answers and sometimes we don't appreciate the answers that might come to us. And so in terms of someone who is depressed or who is suicidal, um, what we often see is that that person has gotten so low and so entrenched in their own negative thinking or their own lack of self-worth that they really truly believe or oftentimes convinced that their mere presence it makes the world more miserable or makes the other people in their lives miserable. And so, again, every person is different. But what I've heard from a lot of folks that I've worked with that have been in a suicidal place is that, well, honestly, it sounds like a very compassionate thing for me to rid my existence of the world because I seem to be screwing everything up or I seem to be making everybody's um, life more miserable. And so um, I think the best thing for me to do is just to rid myself of, of the pain that I'm causing everybody. And so to say that, oh my gosh, that was so selfish that Johnny committed suicide, it misses the point. It misses the point of what that person was going through. And really, really the state of their brain was, was physiologically looked different in that severe depressed state. And, and clear mindedness um, wasn't always achievable. I, I want to come back later on in the show when we, when we talk about what do you do when you have legitimate concerns and there's, you know, there's all these incidents of violence and everything. I want to, I want to kind of land there later on and we talk about what is the responsibility of people in all different kinds of uh, areas of society. But um, one of the things that's interesting historically when you were kind of running through the 19th century mm-hmm. is that a lot of times it was the, it was the caring reformers who made these great strides, like Dorothea Dix, for mm, example, and, and, and Kirkbride. And they helped, they started to get all this money to come in, and they started to create these places because they were not just thinking about what was the best treatment, but also where that treatment should happen, yep. who should who should finance the treatment, how long um, 
you know, it might take for effective treatment to happen. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of that kind of came out of the chaos of industrialization where these cities just became overcrowded messes and everything. So they created, in a lot of ways, this idyllic setting to do great work. And that's the very place that it, within a generation seemed to become such a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when Nellie Bly goes in undercover yep. um, and spends her 10 days in the madhouse. So I, I think, at, you know, at the outset, as we're talking about this, and we're going to certainly probably criticize a few camps here. And Lord knows I'm just an outsider, like uh, trying to trying to hear about this, that a lot of times it's the people who are trying to do good that end up creating um, some negative conditions. Is that is that a way to frame it? I think sometimes, yes. I think that the, 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 the idea of this barren, concreted wall insane asylum is one that's still buried in the minds of a lot of people that really isn't normative. Um, so to answer your question, yes, sometimes really good intentioned people don't do good. Um, but I think we're moving in a direction where we just have more education than we've ever had before that's helping inform our practices um, to be more effective. One of the things that I learned in doing some research a couple of years ago was the, the number one reasons that people were committed as insane, like 100 years ago, 120 years ago. Um, the leading cause of insanity among male patients was believed to be masturbation. <laughs> so this doesn't tie at all into Victorian values, right? Right. Um, the most common malady for female patients was basically what we would call postpartum depression. Yeah. And after that, it would be quote, change of life or menstrual derangements. These are the kind of things that was landing people in and in get into getting committed. So uh, I mean, these are a lot of the same problems we face in the church today, though. Mm-hmm. Masturbation and postpartum depression. Those haven't left us, Clay. Yeah, except now you're not insane. You're just <laughs> you're just what? <laughs> but you are still you are still uh, vilified. You're demonized. Yeah, yeah. You're the, um, and I think, you know, that's if you look at the way some of the some of the deconstructionists like Foucault approach mental health. They say that the people who got locked away in the asylums were the people who wouldn't or couldn't conform to society, right? And so it was easier rather than rather than living with them and allowing them to disrupt quote unquote normal culture. They were like shuttled away. Uh, and and I think there's something to allowing allowing people who are not quote-unquote normal, which, I mean, that's such a problematic, loaded term, right? There's something about saying, allowing those people to continue to live among us and to challenge us, because I think what we find then is that there's no such thing as us and them, right? Like that that, that everyone um, everyone has, some, has something at stake in this conversation, and it's not like we have the, the normal mentally healthy people over here and then like the weird, deranged... Uh, well, I mean, what are all crazy, right? I mean, all those all those adjectives that that get used to describe people that 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 those categories just become really problematic when you when you live with people and let it be life together. So, particularly, Matt, you you know, you brought up the church. Uh, I, I, this is this is the, one of the reasons I was excited to have Zach on the show was I think the church does a really terrible job of making space for mental health. Um, I, can't, I can't think of how many times I have heard someone say, well, you know, just read the Bible and pray more. 
and then you you won't be sad anymore, right? To someone who's struggling with medication, you just don't have enough faith. Yeah, right. Or if even if you medication aside, even if you just go to a counselor, just warm it up. You don't need you don't need a counselor. You just need faith. And God fixes everything. And if 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 not, then again, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. Uh, so, Zach, as someone who has, you know, you've been a seminary, you have a background in ministry and these kinds of things, like, how do you approach people who don't understand the the need for mental health, for mental health professionals? Uh, like, how would you engage that kind of a conversation? Yeah, I think one of the biggest tenets that I, that I try to operate from is that that anytime that I'm coming up against pushback on something that I know is good, um, I usually think it's because of some type of fear that's there. Um, I think that there has been contention between the religious community and the scientific community for some time, because I think people on the religion side can fear science or they can fear that it's going to um, do away with them in some way. And so there's, I think, a lot of fear between those two groups in general. Um, so I think that's a lot of what it's rooted in. And so if, if, if that's my posture, I usually ask questions that, that, that try to understand that fear better and say, can you just tell me why you're so averse to this? What is the, what is the thing that you're really afraid will happen? What are you afraid that this will mean about you or mean about your son or your daughter if they have to see a, see a therapist? And I try to get better answer, or I guess I try to get a better understanding of what the pushback is coming from, because that's where you can really make headway if you can understand where the pushback is coming from. Um, so that's what my first approach. And, and, and if, the, if they're just really strong-willed in that, then I, then I typically don't engage, I guess. I just think, okay, like this is, this is just what I believe. I try to sometimes point out the error in their thinking, you know, like would, would you feel the same way if this was a medical condition versus, a, versus a, a mental health problem? Because the science tells us things like schizophrenia, things like depression, things like anxiety, they can actually change the physiology of our brains that we do are controlled by them at times. And so just the same way that we're controlled by low blood sugar or by um, cancer cells, whatever it might be, they, they can control our behavior and how we feel. And so those are a couple of the strategies that I try to employ. But the biggest thing that I've found is that, um, is that, that we have, I think I feel like I have to do a better job at this too, is empathizing with both sides, empathizing with the fear um, that can, that can sometimes come up around mental health because of the years and years and years of stigma that have been around that. And typically what I've learned is that humans understand and they change their minds based on, on stories that when they have a friend that has, that has experienced healing through maybe therapy or through some kind of experience, um, that's typically been the indicator that's changed their position or their posture on something. So um, I look for ways to connect to people through those means. Do you know of anyone that this has been beneficial for? What did that do for you? Um, what did, how did that make you think about this differently? So those are just a few of the things off the top of my head that I would say that I use to try to engage. Uh, it, this is something I guess we can probably all talk about a little bit, but but what what are some... What are some ways that churches can destigmatize mental health? You know, you've already mentioned sharing stories together, right? Uh, in fact, in, in my in my preaching at the church where I am, I try to mention that I've I've received counseling and and been really uh, 
healed and helped by counseling as often as I can and, you know, advocate that for other people. So that so that it's coming from a platform uh, and, and just trying to destigmatize that way. Uh, what are some of the other ways that you guys have seen this, you know, where, again, in the in the communal in the communal life of the church, uh, we can begin to tear down the walls between like faith and mental health sciences and things like that. I wonder. I I just want to say like I wonder if it's like I'm definitely interested in the mental health thing, and I'm I'm wondering if it's even beyond what like for me when I hear mental health, and this may not be the correct definition, but I think of like something that could be diagnosed probably. Uh, and I wonder if it's even broader than that. Like I've been in churches where having negative emotion is considered a mental health issue. Do you know what I mean? Like, does that make sense? Have you experienced that? What do you like? Can you, what do you mean? I, I think like what I'm mad? saying is, Oh, anything mad, sad, like I'm having a hard day. Like that's not okay. You're supposed to be a follower of Jesus. Like you certainly don't bring that into the service on Sunday morning. It might be okay in a small group, you know, but you're not going to have a time at church where someone gets up front and says, Hey, I'm, I've had a really hard week and I'm feeling really sad and nothing seems to make it better. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So creating space in even the worship place for there to be, quote-unquote negative emotions. Right. I, I mean, I guess even that term, right, negative emotion reveals a bias towards saying some emotions are negative. Which, guys, I don't think Jesus ever got sad or worried. Or mad. <laughs> I don't think there's any. Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, wait. I think he was just stern a lot. So, so Zach, stern. okay, yeah. So, so as a counselor, how do you, how, what, how do you, how do you uh, de those, those emotions that we usually consider negative? Yeah, that's a good question because uh, one, I guess with the client, I do a lot of psychoeducation around emotions that we know that when emotions are acknowledged or when they're not integrated into our daily life and they cause problems. So we have kind of this this uh, epidemic of really angry adolescent boys, right? The quintessential angry adolescent boy. And I recently wrote an article called the only two emotions men are allowed to feel, which is fear and anger, or no, I'm sorry, which is apathy and um, anger and why that's a problem. Um, Especially with young men, we condition them to allow their emotional outlet to be the whole spectrum of being either indifferent or being really angry all the time. And anything else more vulnerable than that isn't quite allowed. And what happens when we, when we stuff emotions is that emotions can't be, um, if we stuff the negative ones, we're also stuffing the bad ones that research has shown that we can't selectively numb or selectively stuff. And so oftentimes in church circles, when we feel like we're put in a position in, in whatever the, the religious circle might be to stuff certain emotions, what we're doing is we're shortchanging our um, ability for our, for our experience of life. So that when anger rears its head and we're like, well, this means that I'm a bad Christian or a bad Muslim or a bad whatever. So I can't show it. What that does is it create, it kind of just creates that emotion from being able to surface, being able to crest and then be able to fall. And when we can allow emotions to, to surface crest and fall, that's actually really, really good for our emotional development because we can then gain greater emotional control. But if we're cutting it off, right. As it surfaces, what that does is it, it, may, it does not allow us to 
integrate our emotions or really to know even how to handle them, to control them or to express them. And so then we end up with usually a lot of anger or we just, uh, a lot of guys, I, a lot of my clients are men. And so a lot of the, the male clients that I have will report just feeling kind of numb or empty and apathetic. And they're the ones who shut down when their wife, you know, is, is trying to have a conversation with them and they don't know how to even engage it. And so, Oftentimes we see just the short circuitness of one's mental health and their emotional ability because there isn't room for that, that process that I just described. Zach, is, that sounds healthy that you describe that process. And uh, I mean, I was raised by two women. I remember very distinctly, you know, being told it's okay to cry. And then later on, it was, it was my social setting or my culture, you know, whatever that would push back against that as a, as a boy or a guy. But can there be people who go through that cresting process too quickly, too often, that instead of it being healthy, it then becomes just like a constant release of, of, of something and there's a different issue? Yeah, I think if that's the problem, because if you're going through that process, you should be able to see greater emotional control. And if that isn't happening, um, then what I would want to evaluate is if what else is going on here? Is this attention seeking behavior? And if that's the case, then those aren't authentic emotions. Those are manufactured emotions that are being expressed to then get some kind of secondary gain. And so depending on the case, yes, absolutely. Then you would need to look at that because we can, we can, we can do, we do a lot of things to get our needs met. <laughs> we can do a lot of weird things sometimes to get our needs met. And so that could certainly be one of them. That's so fascinating. So, so I have another question. Uh, again, as like, as I advocate for counseling, uh, I have a lot of people then who are want to find a counselor, and I know that that can be like a tricky thing to do. So, um, first of all, I have I have a suspicion about this. So I just want to like say my suspicion, and then hear your reaction to it. And you can tell if I if I'm if I'm wrong, feel free to correct me. But uh, again, a lot, particularly because I'm a pastor, and I get a lot of church people asking me. They say, "Well, I, I need to go find a good Christian counselor." And what I've often told them is that you don't necessarily need to find a Christian counselor, uh, that, that someone who is a, a mental health professional is going to be able to help you become mentally healthy, whether they share your religious convictions or not. Is like, how important is finding someone who shares your faith conviction as you're, if you're going to be like sitting under a counselor? Yeah, great question. Um, well, here's, I would say that one, you would want a counselor that's able to understand and whatever your faith practice is, especially if it's a big deal in your life, if it really informs your life day to day, then I think you need a counselor who's competent in that. Is it necessary that your counselor share all of your same views or your religious beliefs? I don't know. I don't buy that at all. I think a competent counselor is going to be able to to go there and, and to have an understanding if they're, if they're skilled and open-minded. Um, so that's, I guess that's the short answer to what I would say. How do you, uh, how do you are, go about, I'm sorry. Go, how do go you, ahead, Matt. How do you go about picking a counselor then? Like you just, you know, it's not like getting a car or something like what, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't think it is. Uh, you certainly don't buy them straight out. So what, what, uh, what do you look for? Like, how do you find a good counselor? How do you know the difference without, trying it out for, I don't know, six months or something. Right. And, and, you know, in, in some cases, I don't know that there's going to be um, anything that I can say that would give people like 
absolutely, this is what you do and you won't have, then you have a guarantee of having a good experience. Um, however, what I can say, there are things that you can do to be savvy, I guess, about the process. And most, I think, counselors and psychologists are, will offer some type of free consultation, whether it be at the phone call or um, an in-person meeting, that type of thing. Um, and so that, to that, I would just say, come with like a little list of questions that you feel like are important. So one of those questions might be is like, hey, I'm a Christian. It's a really big part of my life. You don't have to tell me if you're a Christian, but would you be willing to integrate that into what we're doing? That's a great question if that's a concern of the, the potential client. Um, I often encourage people to do an interview with the clinician. And one of the biggest things that I say when, I, when people ask me that question is like, when you sit with this person, what does it feel like in your body? What are the impressions that you get? What are the emotions that surface? And just what does it feel like in your body when you're in this person's presence? Because a lot of times our brain can complicate things, but our body can actually, our body doesn't really ever lie. When it's hungry, it doesn't, it can't lie about it. When it's tired, it's usually not lying about it. And so if you're feeling at ease, your body can usually tell you that when your mind is maybe a bit cloudy or, or rushed. Um, so those are just a few tips, I guess, that I would, that I'd offer. That's fantastic. So Zach, I've wondered often how many people in your field do you think struggle with their own mental health issues? And they probably were attracted to it. Some of my friends who were teaching in the social sciences, uh, psychology, I think they were first attracted to the field because of their own mm-hmm. family situations and or personal um, uh, neuroses or whatever. So how, how does that work when somebody goes in basically as you know an embedded survivor? And Mm -hmm. and what do you think the field is like from that perspective? Oh, man, such a good question. Um, Well, the first part of your question that I would say is, do people go into the field because their own mental health problems? Yes, absolutely, because 100% of people have mental health problems. And so, um, yes, that's a big indicator for a lot of people going into the field. And I remember a professor of mine in grad school saying in one of my introductory classes that she says, there's so many of you that are here trying to seek your own healing. And that just really stuck with me um, because I think it's very true that, that there are so many people that were there trying to seek their own healing. And, and here's the thing is that, that all across humanity that we know that humans are meaning making beings that we have to create meaning to our lives And often someone who's battling something, whether it be trauma or victimization or just a mental health problem or family discord, oftentimes they seek the helper position to make meaning of that strife or that problem. And we see that in pastoral care. We see that in psychology. We see that in mental health. We even see that in education and teachers as to they want to go into the education field because they had a rough go um, during education. They want to make a difference. And so they want to create meaning to their lives because of that. And so to answer your question, the answer is yes, absolutely. And are there people that I've met that shouldn't be in mental health or, or be therapists and psychologists? Yes, unequivocally, yes. Um, are there people that are, are good at what they do, even though they have their own problems? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what comes down to that interview and potential clients are interviewing these potential counselors is, do I get a sense of a, this person knows what they're they're doing? Are they going to be able to control the transference they ha- may have toward me? Same thing, I guess, that you would you you know that your congregants might feel about you all. Those of you who are pastors, that um, I've been to churches before where I've thought, you know, this is a this is a guy or girl that 
I don't know that I want to be associated with very closely. And so I'm not going to be a part of this group. Um, and then there are some that have been wonderful. Um, but one of the things that I've learned, especially in my times with churches, is that every pastor or preacher that I have been associated with to some degree has fallen short, has been a disappointment in some way, and hasn't had his or her stuff together in some way. And I think that's absolutely true in mental health and therapy as well. But does that mean that that those people are not unskilled or can't be helpful? Absolutely not. Wow, that's so, I think that's such a great perspective, especially for the people I meet a lot of times who feel like they're just damaged goods or they can't, they don't have the right to maybe speak something positive in someone's life because, well, I'm too screwed up or I've messed up or I've had that problem. But really, that's that's a great opportunity, right? If 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 you've gone through those things that, that even, I think, spiritually, we want to see that in our churches, right? Minister to others as you've been ministered unto. But I want to ask you one final question here about, I've been in classrooms a lot of my life, and it sounds like you have as well, Zach. And on the one hand, we want to not have these um, stereotypical views of people. We want to not um, be harmful in how we view others. And I'm a pretty laid back dude, but I have to say once or twice, there was a student who was with me weekly, multiple times weekly for four months. And they kind of gave off the vibe, like they were the one that could snap. You know, something could happen. They, they, they said strange things to me and the st- other fellow students. Um, what is the responsibility for a pastor, a teacher, a leader, somebody who is in this age of so much, you know, violence? What is the right response and view to, to, to live with? Absolutely. Well, too, as a pastor, um, pastors, I think in all states are mandatory reporters for anyone that they think is going to be harmful. To yeah, teachers too, right? Like right. if someone okay. says it's imminent danger. Right, exactly. And so what I uh, used to do this mental health training for pastors here in Denver, where I'd meet with this group of pastors and train them on just how to handle some mental health problems in their churches. And I think one of the things that they were most shocked by is like, well, what if someone is depressed and we need to figure out if they're going to hurt themselves, what do we do? And I would always say, like, you just ask them, like, that's all you have to do. Like when, when you're asking about harmful intent or when you're trying to discern harmful intent, we don't, none of us have crystal balls and we have to, we have to be direct and we have to be clear. We have to practice words like suicide, depression, self-harm. So they roll off our tongues very easily. And so that we don't feel weird when we say them. And so we can, so I can sit and say, this is some behavior I've observed in you. And I have to ask this question. Are you thinking, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Are you thinking about hurting someone else? And really that's, that's kind of all, all that we we need to do like we want to be sensitive and we want to be empathetic but we have to ask really difficult questions have you thought about have you thought about committing suicide these are some concerns i've had for you um and then take the conversation from there that's fantastic okay so we are out of time um i gotta ask if you like what What's like the one thing you want to say to people who are here in the show, haven't checked out your podcast yet, and they're thinking again about themselves or about someone that they care about, uh, who's who's seeking, who who they think maybe needs someone that can help them figure some things out, uh, like what what, and they're maybe still on the fence. Like what would you what would you tell them? If they're, what would I tell someone who's concerned about someone in their life? 
or maybe them. They're thinking about themselves, but again, there's that stigma, and they're thinking like, what well, you know? Absolutely. I'm just not sure if I should see a counselor. I'm not sure if that's okay or if I need it. You know? Sure. Absolutely. No, I, I hear that all the time, and uh, the there's nothing that I can say that's going to maybe convince them to do that or to not do that. I, I would just encourage them to look at the, the cost benefit analysis. If things, if you've tried doing something by yourself for a long time, or if something has happened to you that you can't stop thinking about, and it, there's this rumination cycle, then that's a good indicator that your strategies aren't working and you need to get a little bit more creative. And one of those creative strategies could definitely be be talking to a mental health professional, or maybe if you're not ready for that, maybe you just need to talk to a pastor. Maybe you need to talk to a friend, whatever it might be, but you need to take a step forward that makes you a little uncomfortable. So that's the first thing that I would say. And we're living in a time now where the majority of people are actually pretty comfortable with mental health services. Now, whether they want to know someone knows about them receiving mental health services, that's a different story, but they themselves can go and maybe see a counselor. Um, I can't remember the last stat I read that the APA did, but there was, there was a percentage of people who are like, you know, the majority were felt okay with this, but there was still a percentage of those people that were saying we would never tell someone that we're seeing someone. So there's still work to be done. But you're not alone. The majority of people are okay seeing a counselor and have seen a counselor. Um, but it's ulti- ultimately, it's going to be up to you whether or not you're going to do it or not. Nice. Well, thank you, Zach. We are about out of time. Um, and before we go, though, we have to take care of a little bit of Storyman business. And that is our pop culture pick of the week. Nice. Pow-pow! Pow-pow! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and go first. Uh, Zach is participating with us in this, but uh, in order to give him a minute, since this is his first papow, I'm going to go with uh, Superman, uh, the, the Superman comic book. It is being written right now by friend of the storyman Gene Yang, and it's fantastic. Uh, the big news is that they've just uh, Lois Lane has just in the last like a couple issues ago revealed Superman's secret identity to the public, so there is no more. Clark Kent Superman. Wait, Bruce Wayne, right? No, that's Batman. Oh, are you sure? Could be Lois is just tricking everyone. Jared sitting here in his Batman shirt. Uh, Matt, I know that you're saying that just to be cruel to me, just to love Gene and comic books. So, yeah, it's you know it's it's a it's a it's a pretty amazing uh, continuity status quo change for the character. You don't often see such big shifts in in the in the most 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 popular characters. So the fact that not only that this happened, but that Gene is the author that was able to do this. I mean, this this is going to be one of those things that they talk about in the history of comic books. You know, fifty. Or a hundred years from now is the the day that Clark Kent finally took off the glasses, right? And so uh, it's it's a really interesting run so far. Gene's just starting out; he's only four issues in. Uh, issue forty four, which is his fourth issue, came out the day we're recording. So uh, I can't wait to see what he does with it. And actually, by the time this podcast comes out, Clay and I will have gone to Austin to see Gene uh, present a talk that I think Matt you got to hear last couple weeks ago, right? I don't know if he's doing the same talk exactly because ours was in a little different setting, but he's spectacular. He's so good at everything. It's embarrassing that he's a good artist, writer, and speaker. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Superman by Gene Yang. Unfortunately, it's being drawn by John Romita Jr., but Gene's writing is still fantastic. (laughs) You just hate Italian. Unfortunately, because Gene is an amazing artist. Yeah. Uh, My pick of the week is the new Muse album, Drones. (laughs) 
Uh, Muse has been on my radar for a while. They've always just kind of been there, and they, I had some nice music of theirs in my rotation. But um, I heard them kind of introduce this album on Sirius Radio the day it came out. And then I stepped away and didn't really listen much for a couple weeks. But, man, I got it on the cycle this past week and have just been listening to the snot out of that thing. So great music. <laughs> They're really clever. They're the, the, the millennial marketing strategies are fascinating to me. Uh, what Muse did was they got out in front and they made a bunch of their own lyric music videos. So the days of like, let's pick a single and then five months later release a second single, that's over, right? Once the album's out, it's out and it's pirated and downloaded everywhere. So Muse just went ahead and they made like all these videos. So they're getting the 50 million views on YouTube and they're going to generate that revenue as well. Well-deserved, great album, great band. I have not seen their live show yet. I cannot wait to... It is a great album. I'm really enjoying it. So, Matt, what about you? Um, I actually have a fantasy novel uh, today called The Name of the Wind by a guy named Patrick Rothfuss. And I read the, I read, you know, I've heard about it before and people are always saying, oh, it's on even footing with Lord of the Rings, maybe first among equals. And I was like, you guys, stop even saying that stupid. And then I read it and it's, amazing like mind-blowingly <laughs> best fantasy i've read in a long long time amazing uh yeah just love it so good and i already ordered the second book it's on its way so that i have something to read on my plane this weekend nice zach what about you what's your pop culture pick of the week pop culture pick of the week uh, well two shows that i'm really into right now i don't know how if these are super new or not but this is just what i've been diving into there's a show on hbo called family tree um, I don't know if any of you guys have seen it, but I no. am all about it right now. And it's, yeah, it's a great show about this so. guy who's trying to connect with his dad by retracing his family lineage back. Really, what? really good. And then also just if you want this, what's that? How do I not know about this? We, we I know don't all know. The HBO shows, I don't know. Like well, history. Family Tree. It's on HBO and uh, you nice. can stream it on HBO Go if you guys have that. And then um, I've been watching Veep a lot, too, with Julia Louise Dreyfus. I think it's hilarious. Nice. And she uh, won the Emmy for it this year, I believe. So it's, a, it's more of a lighthearted show if you, if you just need something light at the end of your day. Those are excellent. Yeah, we didn't give you the disclaimer, and we all happen to pick kind of recent stuff. But uh, we've thrown out stuff that's like 30 or 40 years old that we just happen to watch or enjoy lately. So it's all on the table. Those are great. Beautiful. Picks, family tree. I chose the, the uh, I chose the Gutenberg Bible one time. I'm really into that. So. <laughs> you guys, I think I, I think there's something to this printing method. It's really going to change the culture. Uh, Zach, before we go, will you please tell everyone where they can find you online? Yeah, absolutely. The podcast website is wearemisunderstood.com. And uh, my personal website about the other projects that I'm involved with is just my name, ZachRawlings.com. And you can subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher or iTunes or your podcast app of choice just by searching Misunderstood. Uh, we are going to put all those links in the show notes at storymen.us. You can find them at facebook.com slash the storymen. Uh, again, please connect with Zach. He's got a lot of great stuff to say about mental health. He's doing some great work and telling stories and helping to destigmatize that. Uh, I'm a huge fan of, of these things. I, I think that everyone, uh, if possible, should should experience counseling at least a, a few times in their life. It's, it's so beneficial and healing. And for me, that advice about... Um, how to engage people that you might be worried about, legitimately concerned about. I think that's really, really important in in these days when there's a lot of people who don't know how to do that and they're afraid. Um, mm-hmm. 
but I'm glad that a lot of people within the church have moved to embrace it. So it's great to have someone like Zach come on and share with us. So, Zach, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Again, if you love this podcast and other podcasts you listen to, the best thing you can do is rate and review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being a part of the show. We'll be back. We will be back next week (laughs) with another great episode. In the meantime, thanks for listening. This is a song about the three story men. Life is a story we're all living in. So now that you know the story you're in, just sit back and listen to the three story. Sometimes there's a man. Rather, sometimes there's some men. And I'm talking about the story men here. And I know what you're thinking. Those are some tall fellers. I don't know if that's three stories separately or three combined. Well, we're missing the point. Sometimes there's some men. And you want to know what these hombres are about? Well, I won't say they're heroes. They're just the men who are right for their time and place. These men, uh, shoot, lost my place. Well, I've probably introduced them enough, so just relax for a spell and bend your ear their way.